Thank you so much for joining us here at Re-Encounters. Before this episode begins, it's important to say that this podcast may contain strong language and adult themes. It is also going to contain spoilers. So if you care about being surprised the first time you watch the source material of what we're talking about in this episode, then don't listen just yet. Go and watch or listen to it, take it in and come on back when you're ready. If you're like me and don't care about spoilers, then feel free to keep on listening. But don't say that we didn't warn you. All that being said, let's get started. Hello and welcome. Welcome to you, Sam, first of all. Hello, yes. And welcome to all of you lovely listeners to another episode of Reencounters. Yes, we are back once again with your most favorite, most amazing, maybe, I guess, hopefully, currently movie review podcast. Yes, your, your new favorite movie review podcast, which will at some point soon diversify into other art forms, but... I've always been told that film is the uh, art form of the masses. It's, it's a popular mm. art form, so we might as well start with that and um, clarify things down in the future. Yes, precisely. And I do believe that with film, yes, it is a very saturated market, not just in terms of podcasts, but also in terms of, I guess, online content on um, websites such as YouTube. But it is a very big catch-all for us to start off with. That's why it's a good first art form to focus on. But I'm just uh, whetting people's appetites for what is to come um, over the course of months and years ahead, because Definitely. the podcast has a future. Beyond just the realms of film. Yes, but just the realms of film there. are pretty wide-ranging, and um, today, or whenever it is your uh, listening to this podcast. Whether um, that be over the span of several days, months even. <laughs> I would like to see someone be listening to this um, one episode over the course of months. Makes makes me feel like we're a book. But uh, yes, uh, today we have a very influential film for mm -hmm. you. Um, mm -hmm. One that we've actually both seen before. This is a variation on the formula which we established in our previous episodes. Yes. Because, yes, whilst it is extremely interesting and oftentimes fun and funny to introduce each other to films the other hasn't seen, it is still more exciting, I believe, for us to experience something together for the first time, having already experienced a film or a work of art beforehand individually. Well, as I've said, I think, or at least one of us has said, I think, in every episode so far, it is a very different experience to be watching something not by yourself, because quite a few of these films, the first time I saw them, or at least one of the times I've seen them, I saw, I saw it by myself. Mm -hmm. And in these cases, we've been taking notes as well for the sake of, of doing the episode. Which we wouldn't normally do when we're watching films... Any other day of the week? No, indeed. Um, I, if you're watching a film normally, I, I would expect, I, I think there might be some people out there who take notes, um, just as a matter of course. Um, Mentally, but, at least. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, I have seen some people sitting in cinemas and sitting in theatres taking notes on little notepads. Um, but most of the time, most people don't take notes about things that they watch or that they listen to. Uh, <laughs> one of the things which I find um, most fascinating about coming back to the film that we're coming back to today, mm -hmm. both of us, is one of, one of the best bits of this podcast is discussing 
our individual pasts with the films, how they're part of our cultural background. And mm -hmm. so, for instance, the differences between a more Western, let's say, upbringing and history in the UK and the slight differences between that and your upbringing in Bulgaria. Correct. And, you know, I'm also a very weird mix of several different influences, having started my life in Bulgaria, being brought up in Bulgaria, but then also migrating to the UK and gaining cultural influences and inspirations from not just British popular culture, but also other popular cultures which I've been exposed to over my time there. Mm. And now currently living in Germany, it's not just, you know, an exposure to German popular culture, but also other cultures or other influences which I am, you know, just aware of and becoming more and more aware of getting gaining more and more knowledge of through meeting new people. Yeah, I, I do have to say, I think that it, it points out that we are not only products of the cultural media and the cultural artifacts that we take in through our lives, particularly in our young lives, but also mm -hmm. the cultural products which we take in and we um, that help to form who we are, mm -hmm. are also, it's cause and effect, you know, mm. it's part of our cultural background and upbringing, that what cultural artifacts and, and products we take in. So there's kind of a, a cycle that forms about um, the kind of media that we indulge in and how that, what well, not indulge in, the kind of media that we are exposed to. Correct. And okay. that helping to create the people that we are. And I think that that's mm -hmm, been mm -hmm. a really fascinating theme that we've picked up on um, in all the episodes so far. That The discussion about our backgrounds and that kind of thing is something we'll keep touching on. But I think it's particularly, it's always relevant, but I think it's very mm. relevant today because we're dealing with a film mm -hmm. that is not in the English language. True. Um, it's a very influential film, mm. but it's a film from a culture that is not that far removed, but I guess I'd say slightly removed from those that we've been discussing before. It definitely has its own place within the world context of different nations, different peoples, and different mythological backgrounds, let's yeah. say. And this is why this film was such an event when it came out has continued to dominate conversations and has continued to be such an inspiration for not just films within its immediate genre, mm. but beyond going into popular culture such as TV, such as music, and even cartoons and animations. Yeah. I mean, before we say the name of the film, I can definitely remember episodes of cultural landmarks such as The Simpsons, let's say, parodying this film or even incorporating elements of this film. I think that this film really put the, the filmmaker behind it on the map. This was international one, map. Yeah, the international map. Um, he, he'd been a big name beforehand, mm. um, especially in Mexican and South American filmmaking. Mm -hmm. um, but he, he, what he had been starting to break through into the, um, the Western market and the international market far more. Mm -hmm. But this film, it was a breakout into other parts of the Spanish speaking world. Definitely. Um, because as I say, um, a, a filmmaker, I mean, <laughs> let's say his name, shall we? Uh, Guillermo del Toro, um, is originally from Mexico. True. Um, and he, obviously he, he's been working in the industry for a long time. Mm. But, uh, and this is also a, a, a Spanish-speaking film. He'd done English-speaking films and he had broken into the international market beforehand. But with 
this film, which is Pan's Labyrinth. Labyrinth. I think it really and truly cemented him as a master of his craft. Absolutely, Um, indeed. And, you know, for a first, let's say, non-English language speaking film, for us to do a landmark film as this one, I think it's a very fitting choice. Also, because of our own personal interests within the realms of fairy tales, legends, folklore, mythology, and just how wonderfully this film brings those topics to the front. Yes, it's also one of the finest examples of my personal favourite kind of artistic style of writing and of literature in general, yeah, I guess. If, if you take a film as being part of li- literature in terms of the way that it's written. Yeah, screenplays, um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a magic or magical realism film. Mm. Um, magical or magic realism being a style where you depict events that are fantasy or non-realistic in a world that is clearly rooted in reality. Hmm. Um, you know, either setting it in the now or in a past, but it is a past that you know, could have happened. But there are fantastical elements around it. And there's always a tension at the heart of every magical realism piece, whether it's written or depicted on film or on stage. Are the fantastical mm-hmm, elements, mm-hmm. are the the surrealist or, or non-realistic elements, are they actually happening within the world of the film? Or are they dreamed? You know, there's always that tension. And mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm, al- mm-hmm. almost always with magical realism... One of the debates is Hmm. whether it was a dream or whether it was real. Um, And Pan's Labyrinth or El Labyrinto del Fauno or the Labyrinth of the Fawn. And we'll get into why Pan's Labyrinth is a little bit of a misnomer later on. Um, But it's it's style defining. I mean, there are various (laughs) lists that we've read both before and since watching the film for the mm-hmm, podcast, that mm-hmm. have said that it's the greatest magic realism film ever made. I would question that, but um, we'll get into that. A we bit will later. get into that, but also I just want to maybe make a reference to one of our earlier episodes where I did talk about Haruki Murakami and Gabriel Garcia Marquez as authors who dabble and are not just dabbling, but they are experts in the realms of magical realism. And I believe that this film does really well to present the idea of this border between the real and the unreal, the fantastic, the imaginary, the dreamlike, and what is going on in the real world, which we normal people, let's say, inhabit. No, I completely agree. I think that there are various writers. Uh, it's it's most well known as a literary style. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's various writers who have perfected the style. It, it kind of appears towards the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, around yes. the same time as other modernist art styles are being developed in all forms of art. Mm-hmm. You know, the expressionism at the same time, moving into symbolism and, and things to do with surrealism at the same time. Magical realism is... It's worked on most significantly mm-hmm. in South America. True. So yes. it's kind of appropriate that a figure from Central America and working in South America as well presents one of the greatest filmic artifacts of magical realism, mm-hmm. albeit at the, uh, in the beginning of the 21st century as opposed to in the beginning of the 20th. Um, well, I guess with art forms in general, you always have the desire as an artist or as a creator of specific art forms 
you want to update them, you want to, yes, pay homage to the works of previous artists or to the works of previous creators. However, you want to also put your own personal spin on those works or on that specific movement from the standpoint of your time and age. Yes. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And this is why you have, you know, several different literary or filmic movements and styles and genres who or which just keep on developing, just keep on growing. I think that the, the fantasies that are at play in, um, in Pan, Pan's Labyrinth, yes. or El Labyrinth del Fauno, del Fauno, they're very old. They come from folklore, mm -hmm. and the central character is a child, and it's quite often that magical realism de deals with ch children, or indeed with um, the effects of something that happened in childhood. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. One of the most famous modern writers who uses magical realism is Salman Rushdie, Yes, um, who takes a lot of influence from... Um, Indian culture and folklore, but his his experiences in the UK as well um, informed it. So, um, you know, the Satanic Verses, um, Midnight's Children, Children. Uh, these are very famous examples of his take on magical realism and, and an association with folklore and cultural um, stories. I think is is very important, but it also mm. takes a lot of influence from religion. In, in Rushdie's stories, there's a lot of association with Islam um, and with Hinduism, and indeed sometimes with Christianity. True, um, true. I love Rushdie's books, and mm -hmm. I recommend anyone interested in the style to read them. There are two figures that from the magical realism history that I want to touch on in relation to um, Labyrinto del Fano, um, because. Uh, it, Guillermo del Toro has actually made reference to several writers and quite a few who were who were originally British. Mm -hmm. um, but one is Lewis Carroll, um, ah, okay. who of course wrote uh, Alice in Wonderland and Through the, the Looking Glass, which aren't I would say that they're kind of proto magical realism. They mm -hmm. were they were um, and they were specifically for children. But Lewis Carroll's um, blending of his nonsense style with a story of a real world girl. Um, informed so much, you know, it formed all kinds of stories about particularly a child character disappearing into a world of dreams that may or may not be within the world of the story real. Um, and it also inspired a series of fake photographs. Yes, the, the Cottingley Fairies fake photographs that are famously fakes, but, but beautiful in their own way, because again, they focus on subjects who are children mm. and a very childlike fantasy. Yes, and I believe that, speaking of Alice in Wonderland, I think that one element as to why children are predominantly used in these sorts of magical realism tales, or even Alice in Wonderland's tales, and as an extension of that, or even as a precursor to all of those, I want to point out Grimm's fairy tales. Hmm. I believe is just a mahusive influence on this genre, going back to children, innocence. The innocence which is associated usually with children and child characters allows for a belief that the real world you're living in as an adult may not actually be that enticing, may not actually be the one which you've grown up in, and you want to return to a, I don't know, maybe a state of simplicity or a state of believing in magic, believing in something beyond your capabilities of comprehending. I also, the other writer who I want to mention is probably the most influential early writer in 
um, the creation of magical realism mm-hmm. as a style. A South, South American writer, an Argentinian writer called Jorge Luis Borges. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you if you look at magical realism even slightly, his name will come up immediately. Indeed, yes. And he's, according to Del Toro, his Ficciones is one of the two most important influences on the story of Pan's Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it, this is a self-confessed, almost adaptation of Alice in Wonderland, but it's also an adaptation of various other magical realism and fantasy stories from across cultural history. Yes, I do agree with you definitely that Jorge Luis Borges' influence on the genre of magic realism is, without a shadow of a doubt, immense, as is Salman Rushdie's in modern times. And just going back to Salman Rushdie a little bit, you mentioned his involvement with Islam, Hinduism, and Christianity. Most recently, he has been working on, and he has actually put out, this is before the attack on his life, but Rushdie did publish works based on Firstly, the collection of stories Thousand and One Nights. True. And also based on The Adventures of Don Quixote and Cervantes' novel. And I believe that is why Rushdie is someone else who deals with these sort of mythologies and these sorts of folklore, legendary tales in order to present them to a new audience and always combining them with his own political standpoints and perspectives. Magical realism writers and and fantasy writers more generally are notorious, if they're good, for (laughs) um, looking at various different um, religious and folkloric and and Mm. all kinds kinds of influences to create their stories. They're usually as much researchers and historians as anything Mm -hmm. else. Magical realism as a style involves just being interested in human history. Mm. And... I think that that gets us on a little bit to the fact that Pan's Labyrinth is set in a very definite time. Yes, and that helps, definitely. I think something which came to mind right now as we've been discussing the different authors and the different cultural backgrounds they've had, something struck me as possibly a common point between these authors, namely the fact that they mostly exist outside of a European context. So people such as Borges, Murakami, Rushdie, Del Toro, they combine not just a an artificial outside input of Christianity, but also keep in mind what predecessors of the lands that they inhabit could have believed in. So in Murakami's case, it could be something relating to Shintoism. In Borges's case, it could be something related to creatures or cultures or religions of South America. In the Toros case, Mexican mythology or Central American mythology. And I think this is an interesting talking point, how this combination of different religious influences, one coming from outside and one's coming from, let's say, a more intimate background, intersect within the works of these authors to present this sort of constant conflict between the real and the imagined. Mm. Maybe it's a desire to go back to a previous time without the influences of outside powers such as Christianity. Yes, I think I would agree. I think that as part of this style of creation and of, of writing, cultural sensitivity and understanding and research is incredibly valuable. But I would also argue that much like science fiction, 
you are permitted to take a lot of liberties when you're creating a fantasy world, whether it be running in parallel to the real world or, or it's part of the real world. You, you have the capacity to kind of free yourself from certain shackles Definitely. Um, that other forms of writing, realistic writing, put on you. But I believe that is also the case with writing and creating art in general. You should be able to release yourself from any shackles within the genre that you're creating, of course, in order to allow yourself some artistic freedom, artistic liberties. I agree, but I think that certain styles allow you to do that more than others. Completely correct. <laughs> Completely correct. But speaking of gritty realism, mm. um, one of the things that I think is most important about uh, Pan's Labyrinth is that it's set at a very brutal period mm -hmm. uh, in Spain's history. Definitely. But also in world history. Yes. Um, it's set in 1944. Francisco Franco became dictator of Spain uh, in 1939, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. coinciding with the beginning, well, not entirely coinciding at the, exactly the same time, but coinciding with the beginning of the Second World War. Yes. So within the setting of the film, we're in a rural area of Spain, a forest, and we're, we're in the midst of a conflict between the Franco loyalists mm -hmm. and guerrilla fighters who are fighting for the liberation from Franco's power. You know, it's a brutal period in history. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I've only seen the film once before, but Same one of the here. things that I was struck by both times I've seen it now um, is the fact that that brutality, you know, the fact that it's, it's wartime and we're dealing with um, dictators and fascism mm. across not only Europe, but across the world. We're dealing with a very brutal, very gritty, very angry time. And I think that that is very important. And it leads into the fact that, you know, this, this is associated with magical realism. It's associated with fantasy, which are usually areas where there's elements of joy, elements of excitement, elements of, of beauty, a kind of beauty that you can't necessarily always see in the real world, in the humdrum day-to-day -day existence. True, but it, especially in war times and especially in times of general distress and general depression, let's say. Yeah, but if, if, if I were to, one of the expectations was I was expecting to be hit once again by the fact that even, you know, the fantasies that the, the main child character, Ophelia, goes through and sees they're all kind of brutal and gritty and therefore it's very nearly the perfect fantasy world for her to dip into okay um mm -hmm. outside of her reality i was struck once again but i was expecting that to happen mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and i was expecting the kind of power of the really brutal and tragic moments of this film coinciding and clashing a little bit with the fantasy elements, but also blending with them perfectly. Mm -hmm. I, I, I was also, I was expecting to uh, really, really enjoy the villainy hmm. of <laughs> the, the central villain. Vidal is a geniusly written and wonderfully performed villain. Um, yes, because you do have to commend not just the writing, the conceptualizing of the character by Del Toro as a writer, but also the work put in by actor Seji Lopez. Yes. In yes. order to depict the brutality and the pure evil nature yeah. of this character. He's strangely compelling. <laughs> and I think that, you know, there, there are many, the, all the best villains throughout literature. There has to be an, an, a level on which you connect with them. And True. you understand them. And I think that Vidal, although he's horrific, you kind of understand him a little bit. I expected things to be beautiful and the VFX to be wonderful. 
I remember the first time I watched it, the film seemed a lot brighter. Okay. Colour-wise. Okay, yes. Um, I, I I think that that was something that surprised me, the, the kind of grey tones of a lot of the, the film's colorization. And yet, I believe they work. I believe they work very well to contrast Ophelia and the magical world which she dips her toes and complete body into yes. later on. And, you know, you are struck from the first two minutes, I want to say, three minutes, by the stark contrast of the colors. You have the cold, gray tones mm -hmm. of the Magical Kingdom, which are contrasted then by the first journey into the mountains, the first journey into nature, which is undertaken by Ophelia and her mother Carmen being transported to Vidal's base. Mm. And those concepts in themselves are also very interesting inversions of what you'd expect to see in a magic realism film. Yes, I would agree. I would agree. Mm -hmm. I, th I think the last expectation that I will come to is that I was expecting to cry. Okay. Uh, because I did the first time I watched it. Mm. Um, it's a deeply tragic film, and there are certain moments where the kind of inevitability of, of the sadness and, and the awful things that happen, despite some aspects of, of lightness and, and um, happiness in this film, you kind of know what's coming. Yeah. Um, and it, I was expecting to cry. Um, I very nearly did, but I, I, I don't think I did. Did I? I don't believe you did, no. no. Although, as you said, I wouldn't have put it past you. I think that I had the capacity to cry, but this time hmm. I don't think I did. And that did actually surprise me. Interesting. So I, th I think those would cover my expectations. Yes, I believe I can definitely connect with a lot of those. And especially the first thing you said about the political dark themes and the dark historical period in which Pan's Labyrinth is set. I expected that I would be more interested and enticed by those aspects of the film more this time than just the fantastic elements when I did the first time around, because I am now more aware and more knowledgeable about this period of history. So I wanted to see how it will be depicted on screen. And that also leads me to another one of my expectations, namely how much of historical inaccuracy or artistic freedom would have the production team allowed themselves in the depiction of Franco Spain. Mm. And I kind of thought it would be sort of similar to how liberal with history the Doctor Who series is. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, I was pleasantly surprised that it was pretty realistic, this film, staying in line with the historical events that happened at the time, and just giving an accurate or as accurate as possible depiction of events and the brutality which was part of the day-to-day -day life during fascist Spain's period. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think there are certain decisions that are taken that are very clever in that regard. You know, it's it's said to be 1944, but we yeah. don't specifically find out when. Exactly. Um, but we, well, there's reference to the British and American troops having landed in France, so mm -hmm. we'd assume sometime around summer, but then again, there are certain aspects of the weather that would suggest later or earlier in the year. It's So it, it's kind of unclear. However... The action being set in a um, mountainous location in Spain could also allow for some really interesting, weird timeframes and weird seasonal changes. Agreed, and and of course it's a, it's a, it's partly a fantasy film. Exactly, and of course it being in a rural setting, it's a good place for a fantasy story to occur. Mm. But the fact that it's set away from cities, it's set away from big political and war events, 
um, allows a sense of isolation and it allows it to be, you know, it could be historically accurate. Even if it wasn't, it could be. I believe what you said about the isolationist nature of this film and its setting really connects with another expectation that I had, namely that this film will offer a view into a type of escapism or a view into type of, yeah, isolation from the real world because of the fantastic elements, because of the magic realism elements. And you saying how the events of the film may be isolated from the larger and wider political events really helps me think about this film and the politics and the history on a different level. And this being a little pocket, I guess, of a larger chunk of history, it could also be indicative of other such pockets of history happening around other places within Europe during the time of the Second World War. I remember this film being influential, and I believe I mentioned this earlier, this film being so influential as to inspiring so many parodies and pop cultural references, mm. such as the fawn itself as a creature, or the creature with the eyes on its hands <laughs> being parodied later on in The Simpsons, as I yes, said earlier. the Pale Man. The Pale, the pale man. man, the Pale Man. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. I mean, I, I think being able to recognize everything would take a level of research into Spanish folklore. Definitely. That perhaps we don't have. Or even world folklore. Well, world folklore, but I think particularly, you know, the Pale Man is, and I mean, it's associated, the, the fawn in particular is associated with Greek and Roman mythology. Mm -hmm. um, the labyrinth itself as a symbol is something that dates back even before as a place for meditation, but also for getting lost and, mm -hmm. um, and uh, either in a good sense or in a bad and, and a, a space where dreams take hold. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So there's lots of different influences going on, both religious and folkloric. Rewatching this film makes me super sad that Del Toro didn't end up directing the Hobbit films <laughs> uh, because he was slated to do so. And he was still involved with the Hobbit films, uh, but Peter Jackson took them back over after Del Toro left the project as director. And, you know, mm. rewatching Pan's Labyrinth, I was like, <laughs> why? We were, we were robbed of, of something that would have been astounding. It might be pertinent to advance to the next category that we have, um, namely us trying to boil down a description of the film into five words. Yes. And I think this time I can start off with my description of the film, which is a true Grimm's fairy tale. I believe that having a child character as Ophelia being so enamored and inspired by fairy tales really allows for the elements of Grimm's fairy tales to settle very well into the film. And although a lot of people will be aware of Grimm's fairy tales, I believe that the versions which people are most widely aware of and have probably read as children or been exposed to as children or as young people growing up are actually very sanitized versions of the original fairy tales which the Grimm brothers collected during their time in Germany. Yeah. Originally, Grimm's fairy tales were cautionary tales and were depicting horrible acts of violence, death, and overall lessons to be taught to children in order for them to, or even young people, in order for them to behave better. Mm. In their essence, Grimm's fairy tales are bloody, disturbing, frightening images which are summoned to the forefront with these stories in order to guard people or in order to prevent people from acting in a bad, non-moral way. 
I'm glad that you pick up on the Grimm's fairy tale thing because, as you say, the Brothers Grimm went around Central Europe basically mm-hmm. picking up and, and picking and choosing stories from folkloric traditions that were stories that had been passed by um, word of mouth. They took them and used them essentially to promote a particular set of morals. True, true. Um, that helped to, to kind of found German-speaking society. Yes. Um, and I, I think that uh, obviously that's one use for fairy tales and probably always has been a way of defining what's right and what's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also makes reference to the fact that, you know, f- the importance of folklore in, in terms of this, this film and in terms of the traditions that allow for stories like this to be told and the way that they should be told. Um, and you're right, it also makes reference to the kind of grittiness at the heart mm. of this. I, I think that for me, my five words are kind of referring to a different inspiration for the film. Okay. Uh, which I've mentioned before. Ah, um, I'm slightly cheating because this is technically six words, but I'm going to say that because two of them form a surname, <laughs> um, I'm going to allow it. Mine would be Del Toro's Alice is a Marvel. And I think that it's it's pertinent to think about the, the use of the word marvellous and, and the word marvel. Hmm. Marvellous meaning causing great wonder or extraordinary, and also meaning extremely good or pleasing, splendid. So it, it, it's that in both senses. Coming to me right now, because you just gave a dictionary definition of Marvel, could it be that a different word to replace Marvel, or something that could be similar to it in this case would be awesome in terms of awe-inspiring? I wouldn't want to use the word awesome because of mo- modern connotations. Okay. But then again, you could say that Marvel has a lot of mo- modern connotations. Exactly. So Del Toro's Alice is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Because the sense of wonder that it inspires is definite. I mean, just like Alice in Wonderland, but this is a <laughs> different sense of wonder. This is yes. a darker sense of wonder. And I didn't want to use both wonder and Alice in the same sentence, but I understand. I, understand. I think that it's it's a definite strength of the film, but mm-hmm. as I will make reference to later, it is possibly also a slight weakness, but mm. that we will save for the hot take section. <laughs> <laughs> well, people are interested in our own opinions and our own take and interpretation of the film, so yes, while it may be a hot take because it may diverge from the general belief of the film, it is still our own opinion, it is still our podcast, and... Yeah, we're allowed to to say whatever the hell we want. I think before we go on to the next stage, seeing as we've talked about quite a lot of things already, it could be pertinent for us to um, have a quick break. Yes, we can go and indulge in our own fantasies and uh, have a magical realism moment of our own. Yes, but also, dear listener, don't get too lost on your own magic realism route. We'll be right back. So... Usually what happens now is that we go through a short summary of the film. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know why I said usually, because that's exactly what we're going to do this time. Um, As per the last few episodes. As per every episode, I would expect. We um, will continue with our aforementioned plan. Yes. And schedule. So we are, after a brief shot of a little girl bleeding from her her nose and her face um, in a, a dark setting but the blood going back into Mm, her body very important detail there um we are treated to a brief description of a fairy tale a fairy tale story of a little girl the daughter of the underworld king um, (laughs) escaping to the surface world and dying because she wasn't meant to um, exist on the surface but her father's belief 
that she would return someday and he would wait for her. We are introduced in the back of a 1940s car to the shy and reclusive little girl Ophelia. She is reading a fairy tale book uh, which contains the story of the underworld princess. Her mother is a lady called Carmen. Uh, Carmen is pregnant and they are traveling somewhere. Um, it's they're they're in the forests so. on an adventure. <laughs> yeah, heck of an adventure. <laughs> um, uh, so Ophelia um, is reading this story. Her mother is critical of the fact that she seems to be constantly in uh, reading one of the fairy tale books or reading mm-hmm. a book and reclusive and away from the world and quite shy. So Carmen has an attack of something to do with being pregnant and she needs to stop the car. Ophelia gets out of the car and sees a strange looking insect which seems to be uh, talking to her after she fixes a stone depiction of a creature with horns. Yes. that She meets this insect and she immediately seems to associate it with the idea of being a fairy. It then gets revealed that they are travelling to be with Carmen's husband, Ophelia's stepfather, new stepfather, Hmm. uh, Captain Vidal, um, who is a captain in Franco's army. Um, Boo. Very boo. Uh, Vidal has assumed control over a mill and a a village in a mountainous region in Spain. Mm -hmm. Um, He's hunting uh, partisan guerrilla fighters who are uh, living and fighting them in the mountains. So we, we are also introduced to various other characters within this context. There's Mercedes, who is a lady working at the mill um, for Vidal. And Vidal seems to have a, a strange kind of connection. He seems to flirt with her in a lot of ways, but he also seems to be quite ready to punish her mm. um, for any perceived mistakes. Um, she is kind to Ophelia and... Uh, sees that Ophelia has run off to check out a strange part of the property, which is a a very dark-looking stone structure, which it turns out to be a labyrinth. And the same horned creature is depicted on the gate above that. Mm-hmm. Um, Mercedes forms an instant connection with Ophelia. Uh, we're also introduced to the doctor, who seems to be a friend of Mercedes, and they're clearly hiding something from Vidal. Yes, I believe Dr. Uh, Ferreira. Yes. That's um, his name. They it's discovered that they are actually supporters of the resistance fighters um, and they provide food and supplies to them whilst also pretending to be under Vidal's control. So it's very much a double act. And actually Mercedes has a more personal connection pertinent to the guerrilla fighters because her brother is a guerrilla fighter. I think he's their leader. Mm. He's the leader or one of the leaders of the guerrilla fighters. Ophelia's imagination is highly active um, as I've said, she loves fairy tale books. Um, she finds various other locations as well, which start to kind of inflame her imagination. She meets the um, the fairy again and again and again. Hmm. It's also revealed that she is everyone is very nervous about the birth of her the, the baby new sibling, that, her new sibling, who the mother is sure is a boy. Vidal so, needs to be a boy, exactly. Uh, you know, not his, just his the own mother. paranoia and. Um, Ophelia is very nervous of the fact that her mother seems very sick um, while she's pregnant. And um, there's a clear, very strong connection between mother and daughter. But it's uh, she's very worried about what the birth could do. 
Ophelia then goes into, led by the fairy that she met, um, she goes into the labyrinth and meets the fawn. And the fawn tells her that she is, in fact, this long-lost princess to the underworld empire, of, of the underworld empire, and that her father is looking for her, but that she spent so long in the human world that she has to undergo three tests. Again, very fairy tale like very grim-like, and Christian as well. Yes. She has to um, release a j suffering giant toad from its, its suffering by putting something in its mouth. She had to retrieve a dagger from uh, a slumbering guardian with a, a, the pale man with, with eyes on his palms, uh, which, uh, who has uh, a proclivity for spilling the blood of innocent children, and a third task, uh, which she doesn't, she's not let in on. Um, she, until the end. Yeah, until the end. In the meantime, in the real world, Mercedes and Vidal are kind of in a, a silent war with each other. Um, Mercedes is, is constantly kind of lying her way through, trying to help her brother and the fighters, but various conflicts go on. The lives of Carmen, Ophelia and Vidal's child are caught in the middle of it. Vidal discovers the Doctor, he discovers Mercedes' deception, kills the Doctor, uh, he captures and kills several of the Resistance fighters, not Mercedes' brother. Several conflicts go on, but eventually the Resistance fighters are able to lead a successful counterattack. In the interim, Carmen has died in childbirth after an attempt by Ophelia to uh, using a mandrake root to uh, save her. Um, so Carmen dies, but the baby survives. Um, and Vidal, who has, let's just put it this way, daddy issues and is determined oh, to continue yeah. his line, um, is obsessed by the child, who is a boy. The, as I say, the resistance fighters overrun the mill and the camp and they take control. But uh, Ophelia, as part of it, has decided to try and save her stepbrother. Uh, she steals the baby away and runs into the labyrinth, but she's followed by a, by this point, disfigured Vidal, um, who discovers her, takes his baby, and shoots her. But not before she discovers from the fawn, who only she can see, Vidal cannot see, that the third task was in fact to kill her baby brother yeah. with the dagger. Um, but she refuses to do this, and that's when Vidal shoots her. So Ophelia dies, but the child is taken in by Mercedes and her brother, mm -hmm. and they kill Vidal, t telling him that the baby will never know that he was ever its father. True. And Ophelia dies. We're led to believe that she dies, but is reborn in the underworld kingdom because her blood drops down into the, the labyrinth itself. And it's said that the third task was actually a trick, that the third task was actually to sacrifice herself for the innocent child. Mm. And that would allow her to return. And in what could be either a, a, a real fantasy, that the story being true, or her final dream... She is reunited not only with her mother, but with the father, uh, the, this underworld king, and indeed the fawn, who turns out as a trickster character to not be as uh, tricksy and evil as he could be. And that's where the film ends. Yes, several points on that very well-detailed description of the film. We never actually see Ophelia's father no, we depicted. Don't. We only get some information during the dinner sequence, yes. Carmen mentions the fact that her husband, so former husband, so Ophelia's father, used to work as a tailor and actually made suits for Vidal. Yes, made uniforms for the army. Uniform. 
And yeah, I think with a plot like this and with such stock images, it's no wonder that this film became such a critical success and a darling of critics and wider audiences alike. That's true, but it did face quite a lot of strong competition. Uh, it was released in 2006 and that was a heck of a year. Some so. strong, some far weaker, yet kind of related. It's true, what I mean by a lot of competition is that it was a very saturated year in mm -hmm. terms of the films that were released. There were a lot of big blockbusters and even within non-blockbuster genres, there were big films that are still remembered today. You know, this was the year of Casino Royale, the, the soft reboot of the Bond franchise. Mm. This was the year of The Devil Wears Prada. This was the year of The Pursuit of Happiness. This was the year where... Um, the Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code, The Holiday, Perfume. You've got other films. Coppola's, the Departed. You have Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette. And Borat. How can we forget Borat? <laughs> you know, 2006 was a big year for film, but... Um, Pan's Labyrinth is a powerful, powerful film that Definitely. shines through. Absolutely. Um, and I think in terms of the competition it faced within the fantasy and magic realism genre, in 2006 you also had, yeah, let's say, less successful films in the same genre in the face of Aragon and mm. The Covenant. <laughs> yes. Those films are critically panned, definitely, but they did not impact the reception of Pan's Labyrinth, which was more than positive. Rightfully so, and it has been included on multiple lists as one of the biggest and best films of 2006, very often placing in number one, but predominantly in spots one to three yeah. of multiple lists. Mm -hmm. um, it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival mm -hmm. and after that at the London Fright Fest Film Festival before getting a general release in Spain and Mexico later in 2006. Apparently released around the Christmas period in the US, and released onto DVD several months later into the UK and US markets. And I believe it made more of an impact as a DVD rather than as a cinematic experience. Well, it makes sense that in the West, particularly in the USA, but also in the UK, that it would be something of a sleeper hit. Mm -hmm. um, it definitely would have had a cult following. I do remember a little bit later, so as we entered the 2010s, people were still discovering it. Mm. Uh, and of course, people still discover it oh, these days, but yeah. I, I mean, people of the age where, you know, it would have been aimed at them in 2006, people were still going, oh, wow, you know, there's this film, Pan's Labyrinth, Pan's Labyrinth. I believe also it being released around the Christmas period didn't help it that much because it being seen as a gritty, cautionary, political, dark fantasy tale of magic realism doesn't really fit with the um, Coca-Cola-inspired consumerist image of Christmas. That's true, but then again, it is something of a Christmas tradition, not just ghost stories, but fantasy stories more generally. Oh, yes. Um, and I think that possibly that's what they were thinking about. But I also don't expect that the people who made this film were necessarily expecting it to get, like, massive viewing figures in the US and, and the UK and, and places and like China. Well, mainly um, down to the fact that it's a uh, non-English language film, Yes, I believe there is a place for us to discuss the power of English and the mainstay of English as a language in which film, media more generally, is created, consumed, and for the sake of that, work created in other languages does tend to suffer within its public and within its reception. And I believe the Pan's Labyrinth managed to break that mold very successfully alongside other films from around that period of time, but also more recently especially with the rise of 
Korean language films and their dominance in the West. Yes, yes. Well, I think I think if Pan's Labyrinth had been released now, um, it would have been a different story. Art that's non-English, it's much easier to access. Anyway, it's it's important to acknowledge how much power the film had. It was reviewed wonderfully. You know, people hmm. people well respected film critics like Mark Kermode were saying that it, an epic poetic vision in which the grim realities of war are matched and mirrored by a descent into an underworld populated by fearsomely beautiful monsters. I mean, in- incredibly accurate from Kermode. It's actually quite funny that we did Drag Me to Hell in the last episode. And comparing that, okay, hear me out here. Drag Me to Hell trying to maybe bank on the success of Pan's Labyrinth, trying to create creatures and a setting similar to Pan's Labyrinth, but failing so miserably, horribly, and us going to a film which creates such wonderful, gruesome images (laughs) as Pan's Labyrinth, yet still beautiful and endearing, is quite a tonal shift. I mean, I commend you for the sake of the podcast trying to put in connections that we didn't necessarily think about before. Um, <laughs> but I, I also think that it's almost it's a very nearly insulting to associate a masterpiece like Pan's Labyrinth with a shit show like Drag Me to Hell. In the words of Sasha Bolur, don't joke about that. Well, you joke about it all you want. I would be incredibly surprised if we found anyone who wasn't impressed by... Pan's Labyrinth. Yes. It's an impressive film. And I think that the, the cultural and critical response to the film is such that, you know, that is, that's made epically clear. You know, on Metacritic, it's got 98 out of 100. It's the best reviewed film, apparently, of the 2000s. It's, it's very impactful. Definitely. And very impressive. And it also brought in a lot of accolades for Del Toro and his team. You know, at the Oscars, yes, it may have lost the best foreign language film to Das Leben der Anderen, The Lives of Others, which is another brilliant film. It did still nab the art direction, cinematography, and makeup accolades. I mean, if it hadn't won those three, I, I, How? I, I don't know what it would have won. <laughs> like, well, it, it, sh- it deserves those and some. Completely. You know? Um, and, you know, it makes up for its loss at the Oscars for a Best Non-English Language Film at the BAFTAs, yes. where it actually did collect the award for Best Non-English Language Film. Yeah. As well as some other awards for costume design, makeup, and hair. Well, there's no doubting the um, veracity and and the, the connection between the good critical response with this film hmm. and the truth. Um, <laughs> I, I think with Drag Me to Hell last time, there was something of a gap. Um, between the the facts and the uh, the critical response. Yes. Um, shall we move on to talking a little? I, we have made reference to some of the individuals who were part of this film. Oh boy, have we? Um, but yes, we have. Um, <laughs> but I think there's more to say. Mm, um, always. You know, we've said Guillermo del Toro's name several times. Um, and how amazing and visionary as a director he is. He's a, he's a true visionary. The thing which he's probably best known for is his use of prosthetics. Mm. Um, you know, he directed uh, one of the Hellboy films, Hellboy 2. Uh, he did Blade 2. And he's most famous, most well, recent history for winning the Academy Award for Best Film with The Shape of Water, which again featured um, one of his longtime collaborators, Doug Jones, mm-hmm. um, as the, the creature. Yes. Um, 
because Doug Jones is famous for being one of the greatest um, prosthetic. prosthetic using actors. Yes. Um, and his involvement in Pan's Labyrinth is wonderful uh, because he plays not only the fawn, uh, but also the pale man. Indeed, yes. Um, yeah. And if you think about Guillermo del Toro's use of prosthetics, that really lent itself to his love of fairy tales, love of the grotesque, love of horror, and him just wanting to you know, create films and art in those genres and with those influences. And most recently, you can also see some of his works on Netflix under the uh, Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities miniseries. Yes. Which are stories filmed by him and also written, inspired by him. He is someone who has continued to create works over and over and over again, having two massive hits in two different decades with Pan's Labyrinth, and The Shape of Water. He's, he's a very powerful figure within filmmaking. Oh yes. And oh, rightly yes. so. Um, I think then we can also discuss some of the other actors. Yes, we can. We've, we've as... mentioned Doug Jones. Yes. Doug Jones is a longtime collaborator with Guillermo del Toro, but mm. he's also, uh, he starred in uh, some earlier films done by del Toro, including Mimic. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's well known for being probably one of the best known practitioners of big-time prosthetic acting. Yes. He's been in The Shape of Water, of course, uh, What We Do in the Shadows, Star Trek, Discovery, as Saru. The prosthetics of, uh, in that are just wonderful. He, he disappears quite literally <laughs> into the roles that he plays. Out of the makeup, he's this kind of very tall, very thin, spindly human um, <laughs> who, uh, you know, you can understand why he's cast in the roles that he's cast in. Mm. I think a really fascinating thing about uh, Doug Jones's experience in the film is that he didn't speak Spanish. True. Very um, true. And that he was so devoted to getting it right for Del Toro that he learnt to say the lines phonetically. They were then dubbed over, but of course he had to deliver the lines visually. So whenever you see the fawn talk... Moving it, its mouth. Yeah. It, it, it's his mouth moving... The sound that you hear is someone dubbing it over in time to how Doug Jones was saying it. You have to commend the physical performer as much as the the performer whose voice it is. Mm-hmm. Um, as powerful as the voice might be, the, the physical performance has to be a part of it as well. It's perfectly understandable why Del Toro got a, a, a person with a different voice and a, a native Spanish speaker mm-hmm. to actually have the lines as we hear them in the film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yes, that, that's a point that I wanted to touch on with Doug Jones and commend him for being so devoted to the part. Absolutely. Absolutely necessary. And um, being a longtime collaborator, I imagine his work with Del Toro has really served him well in order to carve a name for himself and then move on to other projects which we mentioned. Yes. And, you know, speaking about carving a name for oneself, one of the breakout stars of Pan's Labyrinth is without a doubt... Ivana Baquero, mm. who plays Ophelia, only aged 11. Yes, and she does an extraordinary job. Oh, completely. And, you know, you mentioned the fact about Doug Jones having to learn Spanish. Ivana Baquero apparently was so impressive at the auditions that she convinced Guillermo del Toro to change the age range for Ophelia. Initially, she was supposed to be around seven or eight years old, but Ivana Baquero actually inspired del Toro enough with her performance and apparently blew him away so much that he changed the age for Ophelia to around 11. So just about that beginning of teenage year girlhood that Ophelia was going through Mm. and Ophelia is depicted as. And I believe that's a very interesting point 
to also note down because fairy tales are usually associated with younger children and as cautionary tales for children before their teenage years, I yes. believe. So having Ophelia be such a, uh, not a late bloomer, but such an introverted recluse seeking the comfort, let's say, of fairy tale books and escaping the reality which she's in at such an age is quite a starker, stronger image. Well, I'm really glad that that decision was made. And if it's down to her, then, you know, massively impressive because her being slightly older mm. allows for the grittier tone to make a lot more sense. Yes, it would be equally tragic for a younger child to be, you know, killed in the way that she's killed at the end of the film. Mm. But I mean, the slight more maturity feeds into a lot of the, the kind of stuff that she does with her mother. She's had more chance to be connected with her mother. She's got the elements of maturity coming out. She understands more things. And so therefore the associations and the mirroring between the real world and the gritty world of her fantasies makes more sense because she's older. I also think that, you know, if, if a child of seven or eight was still reading fairy tale books and uh, Carmen, the mother, was having an issue with it, I think that would make less sense Completely. than a child of 11, 12 being told, you really should get your head out of those books now because you're too old for them. She's still active. Uh, mm -hmm. as an actor, and she does roles both in English and in Spanish. Mm. Um, so go out and see her films. Absolutely. Because uh, she's she was wonderful then and she's wonderful now. No Absolutely, doubt. definitely. And I think that is a very common point amongst the other Spanish-speaking actors which we've decided to focus on, namely Sergi Lopez mm. as Vidal and Maribel Verdú as Mercedes. So yes. you have Sergi Lopez who before this role in Pan's Labyrinth was an established actor in the English, French, and Spanish language. Yes. And most recently, he has been back to, I guess, prominence in English language films with his role in The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. One of the most interesting things with Sergio Lopez playing in this film, the, the villainous and horrific figure of Vidal, he was primarily known beforehand within Spain as a largely comic actor. Oh, okay. Um, and the production staff, mm. they went to Del Toro and said, are you sure about casting this guy? Because, mm. of course, you're from Mexico and you've been working in Mexico, America and South America. Are you sure that you want to cast this comic guy? This guy is known for being a clown. Mm. And Del Toro basically looked at them and said, yeah, I want to go with what I decided because I've seen it in him. He's the guy that I want. Exactly. So Lopez was bringing in crowds because he was well known, but there was a danger that he would switch some people off because they might assume that the film was a comedy mm -hmm. because of his involvement. He proved them wrong. Yes. Definitely yeah. proved them I wrong mean, in his role. I, I would go so far as to say that this is one of the best depictions of the villain in film ever. Pretty high up there with Heath Ledger's Joker? Heath Ledger's Joker is is a villain in different terms. I think that... I, Still if, a villain. If, uh, we might one day, uh, because I've, I've been fascinated by villains in, in stories almost my whole life, we might do a second podcast, maybe in a blue moon in the future, where we discuss villains in literature. Mm. And I would be and very, very... Well, okay, in, in art, in culture. <laughs> I would be very, very willing to have a debate with you and anyone else who would like to come along about the nature of villains. But Vidal... In film, in terms of a realistic depiction of a villain, I would say he's one of the best. And his name definitely helped for the film to gather a large audience and to put bums on seats, so to speak. 
but I it wasn't just him. <laughs> exactly. It wasn't just him. I believe also the actress playing Mercedes, Maribel Verdú, was and still is a household name in Spanish cinema. She also starred in one of the other most influential films to come out of the Spanish-speaking world, namely Itumama Tambien. Yes, Almodovar. Almodovar film, who is also a very... Not a collaborator of um, Del Toros, but a close friend of Del Toros. Well, yes, there, there are a number of Spanish-speaking world directors who mm. kind of know each other. And yes. I know that Pedro Almodovar and uh, Del Toro, are they are friends, they are collaborators. Mm. Um, Iñárritu as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that it's it's great that they, they talk and that they collaborate. It's interesting, all three of those names that I've just mentioned are visionary directors in their own right and have been recognised for being so... Um, with critical acclaim and with awards. Definitely. And, and you know, you've also got Alfonso Cuaron, four names huge within Spanish-speaking cinema. So, mm. yeah, wonderful. But Absolutely wonderful. Maribel Verdú, she was a big name at the time. She's remained a big name in not only in Spanish-speaking cinema, but across the whole world. Um, Most recently also starring in the um, slightly critically panned The Flash film. I think that this film, especially within the Spanish market, but even outside it, had a lot going for it in terms oh, yes. of making people go and see it. Absolutely. And I think it's it's interesting, as we said earlier, it picked up a lot of views at the time, mm. but it also picked up a lot of sales in DVDs. Exactly. And, and it made $84 million on a budget of $20 million, but a, a huge chunk of that came from DVD and home video. Interesting. Sales. So, moving as we do along with our patented schedule, we come to what we've repeatedly said is one of our favourite aspects of the uh, podcast plan, mm. um, which is the potential replacements or alternatives. Now, most of the time, this is done purely with regard to cast. Yes. But we've gone about it slightly differently this time around. Due to the nature of this film not being set in the English language and due to this film making use of the incredible talent of Spanish-speaking actors, we decided that this time we would, instead of changing the cast of this film as it would have been alternatively cast at the time of release mm -hmm. and alternatively cast now, we decided that we want to present two different versions of the film mm. with modern day casts. Yes. Namely, one version of Pan's Labyrinth where the setting remains in Spain, however, it has an English speaking cast. And another version where the entire inspiration for the film get transposed and transported onto a different geographical and historical setting slash background. Yes. I believe in this way we would be able to respect the art of the film to the best of our abilities whilst also making more informed decisions about alternative costs hmm. simply because where we come from, where our inspirations and our cultural touchstones are, we simply don't have the amount of information or the amount of cultural references about Spanish-speaking actors and Spanish-speaking art in order to make suggestions as to alternative casts for Pan's Labyrinth at the time of its release and filming. Yes. And I believe that this will be something we come back to in future instances of this podcast where we discuss films outside of the native English language. And I, I think that also with a film that based on folklore, yes, this version of Pan's Labyrinth is very much to do with Spanish and European folklore and religion. But it's important to recognise that a story like this could be told 
um, in relation to various folklores from around the world. Yes. That said, it's important to remember that it was originally written for the Spanish-speaking world, and particularly in with regard to European and, and Spanish folklore. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's important to keep a Spanish version. But we're doing an English-speaking cast because we also don't want to get away from kind of our roots. Exactly. Um, and the things that unite us. I'm also aware that there will be people from a broad range of backgrounds listening yes. to this podcast. So... You know, that explains, hopefully, why we've decided to do things the way we are. Staying true to ourselves, but also true to the origins of the film. Completely. So, uh, Boris has taken on the task of doing uh, so a remake, let's say, in, in the English language. Yes, a version in the English language, yet still set in Spain. Yes. Uh, I guess the first question would be, would you stick with the time period? The time period, I was thinking about this, could be slightly interesting to put it into a modern perspective... And maybe try and talk about the drive for Catalan independence. Okay, yes. And this might be a bit of a big kettle of fish. Not a bit. It is a big kettle of fish, which I'm jumping into. But I believe in terms of a political movement, which is inside of a nation, it could possibly reflect some of the motivation and some of the determination of the people which we see in Pan's Labyrinth, in this case, I guess the partisans and the original Pan's Labyrinth, mm. the partisan guerrilla movement, it could be transported to the modern day in such a way as to have the Catalan independence supporters mm. be depicted in such a way opposed to a regime which denies them a specific independence and a regime which denies their drive for self-determination. Okay, I I can see that. Um, The only thing that I would say as a kind of caution would be that if if we set it, if you were to set it in a modern day context, then we would get away a little bit. There's still brutality around today, a Mm -hmm. lot of it. But we get away from the particularly brutal, particularly angry and aggressive context of not only fascism in Spain... Mm. Um, but fascism throughout the body of Europe and the Second World War. You know, this was this was one of the worst periods, not only in the 20th century, but across human history. Okay. The first half of the 20th century is, uh, you know, it's it's become an iconically brutal period of history. Mm. And I think that taking it too far away from there would lessen the level of brutality. And mm-hmm. also, in the modern context, children have a lot more things to distract them. They don't get as lost... I would say, in storybooks. Because they have new methods of taking stories in. Uh, They have new methods of of watching, but also of reading and of, you know, indulging in fantasy. And Mm -hmm. I don't know whether that would lessen the effect of the quite rustic and strangely beautiful depiction of the fantasies in the film. Okay, I understand those um, fears and considerations. And to that... I would like to say that across Europe nowadays, we're seeing a rise in far-right politics and far-right parties. I I have to say, I personally have to do a little more research into the nuances Mm. um, behind the Catalonian um, independence movement. 
Um, but I, I think that it, it's certainly possible. It's a possibility. Because fantasy and magical realism exists in a modern context exactly. just as much as it did in, in the first half of the 20th century. Yeah. So, so what would your casting choices be in that context? So I think we're mainly going to focus on three characters, Vidal, Mercedes, and the Fawn. Yes, missing out Ophelia, but in reference to our decision, or at least my decision, not to recast Nemo mm-hmm. in Finding Nemo, it is, it's a task that I've persuaded myself that I haven't had time to research <laughs> modern-day child actors. Yes. Um, and to be honest, I, there are lots of child actors who I'm sure are brilliant and could pull off a, a very good Ophelia. Um, but I don't know how entertaining or useful it would be as a recast. I will start off my list with Raul Castillo, who is a American-Mexican actor most predominantly known for his role in the gay TV series from the late noughties, early 2010s, Looking, which also included Jonathan Groff and Russell Tovey. And I believe that he is, firstly, yes, an attractive man, but not just that, I believe that he is capable of pulling off a certain grittiness and a certain penchant for violence which Vidal still needs to have in whatever version, whatever remake of Pan's Labyrinth you create in order for him to still be a convincing villain. Yeah, I can see that. When you said that, but I just thought, because Raul Castillo is a Mexican-American actor, there are a couple of conflicts within Mexico True. Uh, that you could set it as part of, where guerrilla, because guerrilla is a, a Spanish origin word, that kind of warfare was actually kind of used most prominently within Mexican civil wars. Oh, um, okay. The, the ones happening within the 1800s, but also the Mexican Revolution of 1910 to 1920. Mm, um, okay. um, so there are periods in Mexican history, and of course you need to rethink the mythology slightly and associate it possibly with Mexican folklore or, or like Aztec folklore, that kind of thing. Um, but I think that that could be an interesting take. Um, but that's not what we've researched. I just thought I'd mention it. So we've got your Vidal. Yes. Uh, who would your Mercedes be? Now, my Mercedes, I thought this actress was a lot younger than she actually is. But at about 35, she would be just about the perfect age for Mercedes. And she's recently gathered a lot of popularity in films such as Blonde and Knives Out. This is Ana de Armas. Yes, one of my favourite... I, I think her, her star is now very much in the ascendancy. Definitely. Not just in the ascendancy, it's risen. Um, but I, I, I love her. I think she she's is great. wonderful. And, you know, watching her in Knife's Out really made me think, okay, this is a person who can really act their socks off and deliver comedic timing with the dramatic elements, with beauty as I, well. I will also just say, her part, in No Time to Die, hmm. the James Bond film, is the best part of that film, by far. Anyway, <laughs> that's a side note. But cool. Okay, so that's your second recast. What's your third one? For the fawn. My third recast for the poor fawn. Poor Doug Jones. Poor Doug Jones. Well, <laughs> we can't put Doug Jones in simply everything, okay? No, we can't. And as we are reimagining this film as a sort of a uh, mainly English-language-speaking production in Spain, this is going to be slightly weird, but... Follow me here mm. on a little journey. Someone eccentric. Mm-hmm. Someone who has a certain air of mysticism and a certain air of simply being above it all and simply being a bit otherworldly and also I being involved in... I can in, tell where you're going with this. And being involved in such 
various projects that they take no note of, let's say, gender, sex. Uh, okay. They love art for the sake of art. Yeah, I can tell exactly where you're going with this. <laughs> and the person who I've chosen to replace Doug Jones is Tilda Swinton. Uh, yeah, of course it is. <laughs> Tilda Swinton is a terrific actor with so many credits to her name and she never phones it in. She never phones it in, but she also has a wonderful talent for disappearing into roles, both in terms of, you know, both visually in terms of the prosthetics and, and the, the makeup that she will mm -hmm. use, but also in terms of her incredible ability. She's got perhaps into a little bit of hot water um, in the same way as other actors have recently yes. because of certain um, roles that she's been cast in that perhaps she shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. uh, the Ancient One in uh, Doctor Strange, for instance. And again, this is an instance of her being an English white woman in a film set in Spain, or, or indeed somewhere else. But yes. I, I think that if she were... I mean, Doug Jones is a white man, um, so, you know, there's the same thing going on. Um, but she she would definitely disappear into the role. Of course, depending on the quality of the prosthetics, but if she... Um, if, if it was the same level as mm -hmm. um, some of the work that she's done, and indeed of uh, Doug Jones's uh, prosthetics, then... Oh, absolutely. And I think... One thing which led me to the recasting of Tilda Swinton was her work in the film Suspiria from 2008, where she plays three different roles, one of which is a character called Dr. Josef Klemperer, where she puts on prosthetics in order to be depicted as a more than middle-aged German psychologist character. And there was even a whole debacle around the fact whether she or someone else starred in that role. Hmm. I believe the cast and the production team of that film created a rumor about a person called Lutz Ebersdorf being the character of Dr. Josef Klemperer. And I think it must have lasted about a year or a bit, this, um, this controversy. But then Tilda Swinton actually admitted to being the person behind that character. Which, again, adds that level of secrecy, mysticism, and, as you said, disappearing into different roles. Yeah, she's, she's always been an ethereal figure, an ambiguous figure, and, you know, a gender somewhat non-conforming figure. Completely. She, she does use she, her pronouns, but she's always been, she's always, ever since she played Orlando in yes. 1992, she's been a, a, a figure who has been... Um, let's say, empathised with and um, followed by gender non-conforming people. Mm -hmm. um, and she is extraordinary. I love her. Um, mm -hmm. And, yeah, in the end, her talent would be the main reason for her being cast in a role like this. Definitely. So that is why yeah. I cast her as my choice for um, replacing Doug Jones as the fawn. Right. Well, now I'm going to have to take people on a little bit of a journey because the way that I'm also than I do. <laughs> well, um, it, it's slightly more of a journey in that I'm not only recasting, but I'm also transposing the film to a different place at a slightly different time. Mm -hmm. um, Can't wait for this. I think the strength of folklore is something that I've spoken about multiple times in this podcast. Um, I can think of nowhere with more powerful folklore than Ireland. I do have a fascination with Irish folklore. Um, as in, in, in the same way as I do with, with other places. But I think that um, a version of Pan's Labyrinth would work in an Irish setting. You'd have to change yeah. quite a lot of things. Oh, yeah. But you, you could do it. It has a rich enough folklore system and mythical creatures 
in order to allow changes and yet retain some similarities to the original source material. Yes. The conflict that I would make reference to, I mean, it's it's part of a wider conflict, uh, basically the, the Irish wars of independence, which occurred mm. um, in the early part of the 20th century, um, but with a particular focus on the troubles of 1920 to 1922. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have Jamie Dornan. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not going to try and rename the characters um, because that's getting too much into a potential screenplay. Precisely. Uh, but our Irish version of Vidal would be a Ulster loyalist um, commander, either a captain or something higher, um, in either the British Army or as part of the Ulster Special Constabulary. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. A brutal figure who takes pleasure in causing pain to others, just like the Vidal that we see um, in the original. We're talking about this as if they're actual films. Um, but yes, in Pan's Labyrinth. Um, Jamie Dornan is Northern Irish. Um, he's gained quite a lot of prominence. He was in uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. And beyond that, he's gained prominence. Yeah, of course he has. Um, but before that, he prominently on British television played a villain called Paul Spector in the TV series The Fall. He also, unless you count um, the Fifty Shades, his depiction of Christian Grey as being villainous, which could be in a certain context it could be. Yes, he's also played uh, something of an anti-hero character um, in the more recent television series, The Tourist. Mm. Um, I think he has, he's very handsome um, and is well known as something of a uh, a, a sex object. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's... I wouldn't he, say no to him. It, yeah, no. Uh, but I think that he could sell the darkness and the anger behind a Vidal Absolutely. character. Yes. Um, apart from that, apart from him... As a version of Mercedes, I would cast Jesse Buckley. Ooh, someone else who's gained popularity recently. Yes, Jesse Buckley is not only a beautiful actress, <laughs> um, but she's got a growing popularity. True, as true. a figure. Um, and I think that there's something of the kind of classical Irish beauty hmm. about her. You know, the the, the, the well known red hair, and um, you know, she she would sell something of a kind of pastoral version of of Irishness. Um, okay. She she is actually Irish. She's from Killarney in Kerry, um, and she's been in various BBC television series like War and Peace and Taboo. Um, she made a film debut in Beast in 2017. Mm. Um, she is she's been in Fargo. Uh, she was in Chernobyl. Um, she she's definitely um, growing in popularity uh, on the stage. She was the uh, debut. Uh, revival version of Sally Bowles in the ah, 2021 uh-huh. West End cabaret. Okay. Uh, beautiful, and, beautiful. Yeah. I, I think that there could be, because she's a singer as well, I think that um, you know, there's the lullaby sung at the end to the dying Ophelia, and I think that her voice could be a useful part of the soundtrack. The soundtrack to Pan's Labyrinth is beautiful. Mm. When we get to the fawn, this is an interesting one. I'm, <laughs> I'm cheating slightly here because oh, it's not on, just it's one fine. person. But in order to reimagine the, mytholo- the mythological aspects of this, I've had to think about which figures from Irish mythology I would put in. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, um, I definitely escaped that trap by still keeping it within Spain. Yes. Uh, I mean, there are there are various. I think that um, my casting choice for the stand-in for the fawn would be for a puka or a puck. Hmm. Um, which are little Celtic or, or Irish um, fairies slash goblins okay. um, wow. who are sometimes 
benign. They're sometimes benign and, and kind and helpful, but uh-huh. they're also tricksters. You know, they, they fit ah. into that trickster um, thing. I want. I didn't want it to be a leprechaun <laughs> uh, because I think that would be uh, that's an overused thing. But mm. as a callback to leprechauns, oh, no. and as a uh, perhaps a chance for him to redeem himself. Oh no! I think I would cast Warwick Davis. Um, he's not Irish, um, but I think that he is such a well-known figure that his yes. involvement in the film would would not. He's he's also worked extensively with prosthetics. Oh, so much! He's in almost his entire life. He's been working with prosthetics, famously as um, Wicket the Ewok in uh, at the age of twelve to thirteen when Return of the Jedi was was made. That is ridiculous. Uh, he was he was starring in in that film at the age of twelve to thirteen. Um, and he's he's well known for being a very versatile person, very mm. versatile actor, being devoted to the projects that he makes, having long history with fantasy projects, not just Star Wars, but Willow with George Lucas. Ah, um, okay. He turns up again and again and again in all kinds of films. He's an excessively well-respected actor. And indeed, the same thing could happen as happened with Doug Jones, where his voice could be dubbed over with someone actually Irish. Yes, I think Warwick Davis is uh, the, the right choice uh, <laughs> because of his profile. But around him, there would be other figures um, from Irish folklore. Okay. I would replace the toad with a banshee mm. um, whose wail would have to be stopped. And in that role, I would cast Maria Doyle Kennedy. Ooh. Um, Maria Doyle Kennedy is a wonderful actress um, and singer. Um, and I think that her voice would be uh, wonderful. She, she's kind of well known. I know her because of her role as Catherine of Aragon. Um, in the 2007 to 2010 Tudor's television series, uh, which <laughs> she did beautifully in. Um, she's been in various, various things. She, she's got a very well-known face, but people might not know her name. She was um, Mr. Bates' wife in Downton Abbey back oh, in 2011. Wow, okay. um, she was also an orphan black. Yes, as Siobhan. She's got a very powerful voice. I think that she would make for a great banshee. I would have a danger in the woods being a Dullahan, Okay. A, a kind of headless horseman figure who, if ah. they find out your name and say your name, you die immediately. And that would be a, a threat. Because a lot of the conflict, the real world conflict, happens in the woods. So if there's something that the Ophelia character is frightened of in the woods in the fairy world, um, then that would be good. Uh, that, would, that would work really well, keeping her away from a large swathe of the conflict. Um, that would also fit in very well with the well, not the love that Guillermo del Toro has of horses, far from it, but the use of horses from the original source material. Yes, yes. And Dullahans are used as a cultural reference point in a lot of... Um, a lot of... Uh, Other media. Yeah, they, they turn up in anime, for instance. Yeah. Um, they're, they're a very cool part of Irish and Celtic folklore. Mm-hmm. Um, I, if, if he'd be willing to do something along those lines, I'd get Colin Farrell to play the, the Dullahan, because <laughs> he's got such a cool voice, but he's also so well-known that even a cameo from him would bring in audiences yeah, from okay. all over the place. okay, okay. Um, <laughs> the last casting choice, um, which would be my replacement for the Pale Man, would be a creature called the Bodach. Now, it's interesting because the Bodach is kind of harmless, but he's well known to play tricks on children. Mm. So if you were to create a version of it uh, that's closer to the Scottish folklore, where in the Scottish folklore, the Bodach captures children by tricking them. Okay. If you were to make it darker and grittier so that he captures them in order to eat them or something like that, Mm. then that would provide a really interesting um, kind of stand-in for the Pale Man scene. 
um, which is the second test that Ophelia has to pass. Brilliant. Um, and um, Ireland as well is also very much associated with fairy stories. So you yeah. could have Irish fairies involved right from the start and Completely. they could be doing the, the puka or the, the pucks bidding. Mm -hmm. um, and it wouldn't necessarily be the underworld. It could be the fairy kingdom. It could be the fairy queen who's looking for her long lost daughter. The fairy yes. queen or Titania is a well-known part of Irish mythology. Um, so hmm. it, it would be a definite transposition of the story. But I definitely think that a story like Pan's Labyrinth would work very well within the context of uh, Irish folklore. Definitely. And I believe that the Irish countryside and Irish nature itself lends itself to such a transposition and such a depiction of another story which is so reliant on folklore and mythology that it would really make for an interesting comparison and there will be a lot of similarities but enough differences for the two versions to be quite standalone and yet engaging and engrossing in their own ways. Yes. Well, that was a long journey and I think we've got a little bit lost in the labyrinth of our thoughts and ideas. Not to mention the countries of Spain and Ireland. <laughs> but I think that we should use this as an opportunity to try and uh, retrace our steps and get out. And um, we will uh, see you after a short break. Don't go anywhere too soon. We both mentioned that we have only seen this film once before. True. Which makes a change from uh, the previous films which we've seen for this podcast. Yes, and so I'm wondering when, how long ago you saw this film? So, in about 2013, I migrated slash went to study in the UK, and I definitely remember seeing the film before then. I remember vividly just being enamoured with the fantastical imagery and the magic realism imagery together with the sort of military-related imagery depicted by Vidal and his cronies, let's say. And I especially enjoyed the darkness of the magical world with the reality and the vivid colours of the world that Ophelia and, by extension, Carmen, Vidal and Mercedes inhabited. And another thing which I remember vividly is just the quest and the adventuring which I remember Ophelia embarking on and I really enjoyed listening to her talking with the phone and just her growth as a Bildungsroman character as depicted in this film. So yeah, I believe I saw this just before I was a teenager, let's say. Okay. 10 or 12. Yeah, cool. I saw it uh, much later than I should have, let's put it that way. Mm. Um, I saw it when I heard about The Shape of Water. Oh, um, wow. And... So fairly recently then. Yeah, um, Shape of Water came out about 2017, 2018. And I realised that I'd never seen it, and mm. so I watched it um, with subtitles and by myself. Good. And Same I enjoyed here. it, but I, I it was one of these things, oh god, that's a film that I've never seen and I really should have seen. Interesting. Unfortunately, although my parents were always were interested in, in film and, and kind of art film, they've never been too big on watching non-English films. Interesting. Not, not because of any kind of like xenophobia or anything, but just because I, I expect, um, and there's a certain amount of this with me as well, it is nice to be able to understand what you're watching and to be able mm. to kind of, if you divert your attention away from the screen, 
to not have to be constantly watching for the subtitles or stuff like that. Okay. If, if for instance, I don't know, you needed to go for a pee or something like that, you can still hear the film in English if you wanted it to keep on running. Um, okay, I guess that is a valid point. Um, although to that last point, I will raise, if you're watching it on DVD or streaming services, you always have the option to rewind, pause, or just listen yeah, to yeah, something yeah. again. No, I, I realise that. Mm -hmm. but, um with films, you also want to keep yourself immersed and oh, therefore I get why possibly there might be a, a hesitation with watching foreign language films for some people. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that has been and was there. Um, I don't know whether it still is for, for my parents, but I don't know. Um, but well, what's important is that we've both kind of tried to train ourselves to accept films that are both in the English language and outside of the English language remit and films for which we may need, possibly do need, subtitles. And in order to access those films, we do need an additional helping service. Well, it is true to say that when we first tried watching this film, we went through various different versions of, of things online. True. Um, and we had to find one where the subtitles actually matched up with when the words in Spanish were being said. Not that either of us can speak Spanish. Well, I can speak a little bit, but you still know there there are certain words which sound similar to how they sound in English and mm. so you can tell when something's out of sync exactly the lack of synchronicity is really what did it for us in yeah. those moments and that's why we're very thankful to our friend Caitlin um for helping us by getting us uh, the uh, legal um, way of watching things on Amazon Prime <laughs> special shout out to Caitlin for allowing us to legally watch this film also something i forgot to mention I do remember the Chronicles of Narnia being a big influence, and I guess the magic realism of the land of Narnia really played into my love, and before that, taking note of Pan's Labyrinth as a film which I should really watch. I guess, yeah, I, I hadn't thought about the Chronicles of Narnia as having a, a magical realism aspect, but they do, actually, mm. if you think about oh, it. Oh, definitely. Because it's the implantation of real-world children. Um, into this fantasy world. And um, no. and hey, it works again with the um, recasting of Tilda Swinton. Ah, yes, true. Let's let's get into the bit which uh, hopefully people have been waiting for, which is our in-depth thoughts on the film itself. Well, I think I can start this off with the very beginning of the film, where you see the blood, as you mentioned, flowing from Ophelia's nose, but in a reverse direction. So flowing upwards into her nose. And I just loved that element making the story enticing, gripping, and just weird from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And add to that the really morbid looking world of darkness, which is the underworld where supposedly Ophelia's original body comes from, the original spirit. It communicates a really strangely beautiful and fragile setting. And I believe in that little beginning, Guillermo del Toro's direction and script really sets the scene perfectly. I mean, I would agree. I, I think that it's super interesting when comparing this to um, Alice in Wonderland, mm -hmm. the fact that the fairy tale involves a little girl escaping from the underworld to come mm. to the real world. Very reverse. Um, yeah, so it's it's interesting, and I, I think that you can already see the connections between this and not only Alice in, in Wonderland, but also other stories. You know, children are often at the point at which they can cross over different worlds. Look at a story like Coraline, which we've mentioned before on the podcast. Or Peter Pan. 
Peter Pan as well, you know, children have this ability within certain forms of media, they have the ability to journey to other worlds, mostly on the basis of belief. Mm-hmm. I mean, you take mm-hmm. Peter Pan as a good example, you know, how do we get to Neverland? Um, second star to the right and um, fly on till morning. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this whole thing of like, yes, there are a set of like instructions of how to get to the other world, but you you have to do it in a very childlike, just believe, take a leap of faith kind of way, and then you'll be there. And I think that it's starting the other way around, or at least we have a, we have this vision of the little girl with the blood literally going back into her body. Yes, definitely. Um, in a very kind of, we don't know whether that's real or not. And the, the whole beginning of the film is, is based in this kind of like, it's already setting us up for a world that is halfway between what's real and what possibly isn't. Definitely. And this is how you get introduced to Ophelia with the fairy tale book in her hands. And that actually brings me to my next note on the film. The first line which Ophelia ever says, as it is subtitled by Guillermo del Toro himself, is, I saw a fairy. Yes, and it's interesting that that fairy, at that point, it hasn't transitioned into the more conventional image mm, of a fairy. Indeed. Ophelia, mm-hmm. Ophelia shows the fairy, an illustration from the, the book that she's reading, and True. it turns into what she wants it to turn into. Forgoing its previous form as a cross between a mantis and a dragonfly. She's creating the world. She's saying, oh, that's, mm. that's not an insect, that's a fairy. But in, in essence, the way it looks is like an insect. That also ties in extremely well with the colour of Ophelia's dress as we first see her at the beginning of the film. Um, which is green. And Mercedes herself has a knitted jacket almost, Mm. which is in a darker shade of green, which to me immediately builds a connection between the two characters. And later on, you also have Mercedes stating that she remembers the melody of a lullaby, but doesn't remember the words. And that lullaby itself, to me, could also have a connection to the supernatural world. Mm. And in my mind... I decided to interpret that as Mercedes acting as a adult medium between the real world and the supernatural world, in a way showing what Ophelia could have grown up as. They understand each other. Yes. But I don't necessarily see her as being too connected to the world of the supernatural. Okay. The only person who has a direct connection between the real world and the supernatural world is is Ophelia herself. And this begins what I would say is the only weakness of the film. Okay, wow. The performances are all absolutely stellar. The the writing is wonderful. But the issue for me is that there isn't enough connection for me between disparate parts of the film. Interesting. It feels on occasion like it's drifting. And this is something that I didn't realise the first time that I watched it, but... It was almost like there was too much folklore in there. And then the kind of Catholic themes that were kind of layered on top made Vidal's story feel like this kind of allegory for the devil. Hmm. And then there's all the other stuff happening underneath. It kind of jumps between real world, fantasy world, and there's not enough connecting between them. This is why when I mentioned earlier the Dullahan in the Irish potential version. Yes. There is no supernatural element that kind of seems to unite the two worlds in the current version of Pan's Labyrinth. So, for instance, if there was a noise that kept being heard 
from the forest, which could be associated with the guerrilla um, fighters. But actually, it's from it's in Ophelia's mind, at least it's something else. It does have to be said that in a lot of magical realism stories, there is a, um, a tension. There is this very strong tension between is it real? Is it not? Yeah. I think that although Del Toro himself has said that in his mind it's real, all yeah. of the fantasy elements are real, mm-hmm. I think the film, actually, in terms of the decisions made in the filmmaking, comes down on the other side. Interesting. I think it comes down on the side of this is dream, especially when there's a shot towards the very end, the kind of climax, where mm. she's in the labyrinth, she meets the fawn, and the fawn tells her, you've got to kill your, your stepbrother, your yeah. baby stepbrother. Yeah. And Vidal comes in behind her and he can't see the fawn, but she can. And okay. it's, it's very clear, clearly filmically signposted that she is the only one who can see it. Now, that doesn't necessarily suggest, oh, it's all dream. But I think there are other aspects of the film which suggest it's all dream and, and she is imagining all of this and using it as a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. which makes the kind of crisis point of the film all the more tragic. But I do believe that Pan's Labyrinth does allow for an element of ambiguity in terms of making your own mind up as an audience member whether what Ophelia sees is actually real or if it's just in her mind, yet still retaining a tinge of darkness. Well, it does that expertly. And yeah. I think the contrast between... Ophelia's shy, enthusiastic, loving beauty and and loving the magical world and connection with nature is directly contrasted with this monster Hmm. of Vidal. I mean, Sergio Lopez and Guillermo del Toro, as I've said, they create this amazing villain. He's not only a brilliant kind of logical thinking villain. You can see where he's coming from. You can see his his devotion to the regime. You can see why the kind of Francoist imperative and fascist ideology appeals to a man who is so obsessed with machismo and right. with being a man and with, with having power over women and with having power over lesser men. I mean, Vidal as a stand-in for the whole Franco regime and for General Franco is just this horrible, demonic, devilish, satanic character that you just can't help but hate, despite the film showing some sort of humanity and 3D elements to his character. Yes, there are references to the fact that his father died on a battlefield and that he's still got significant issues talking about that. He, for instance, he has a watch Yes. That belonged to his father. And when somebody asks him about it, he doesn't openly acknowledge it. He also has various um, instances. There's a recurring theme of him with the mirror um, Mm. and him shaving using a a hanging mirror in his office, which is one of the rooms of the mill. We see him at one point slitting the part of the mirror where his neck is reflected. And we can see various lines where he's done this again and again and again, whether or not this was actually the various times that Sergio Lopez had rehearsed that particular move, well, or whether it's a reference to the idea that he's been doing it again and again and again. It's possible that this, this character has a certain amount of self-hatred. Hmm. He brutally murders people, not only shooting people, but also beating a young man to death in front of his father. Um, Unnecessarily brutally for... Actually, with nothing. There's no crime proved. Um, well, I think it's mainly because his subordinates believe that a crime has been committed. He doesn't question them. Therefore, he kills 
the young son, and then his older father, and then at the end of the day, or rather, after the killing of these two men, he finds out that they actually committed no crime. Yes, but he didn't care. Because no. the whole point was that it was an example. He cares about being respected, not just respected, but feared as this kind of ultimate example of Francoist Spain. Yes. Um, he's obsessed with finding the guerrilla fighters. He's, obs he's obsessive and paranoid. And he's also obsessed with having this son who will carry mm. his name. On that, maybe it will be useful for us to focus on another one of the characters in our thoughts and opinions on, let's say, Mercedes. True. And they are... I'd say they mirror each other. Definitely. In that all of the things that make Vidal hateful, yeah. they have their mirror in Mercedes, who makes the, a lot of those same qualities kind of respectable, because they're actually yes. quite similar people, both True. devoted to their cause. That old thing of when, it, when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. Mm. Um, they're, they're the two main kind of conflict forces of the real world story of the film. Yes, definitely. And Mercedes's brand of quiet and yet impactful rebellion is arguably the main thing that destabilises Vidal to the extent that he ends up losing everything. I mean, one of my notes simply says, Mercedes, girl boss, gatekeep, gaslight the whole camp. One of the greatest moments of the film, it, it's gruesome, but mm. um, he he also has a penchant for torture. Yes, um, and Vidal. Vidal does, yeah, as you would expect. And he he commits grisly things on, on, on people. And he's threatening to do that to Mercedes at one point when she's been found out for helping the rebel cause. And he's threatening to torture her, but she finds a way out of the, um, the manacles that she's in. Mm. And using a, a small kitchen knife... <laughs> She stabs him in each shoulder and then slits open half his mouth. And Del Toro's direction doesn't shy away from showing... Oh, no. At no sh point. Showing the violence, the blood and the gore. Yes. It's very gruesome. Yes. Um, despite the fact that there's a child main character, this is not necessarily the film that you would like to be showing young kids. 12 and under. No. No. Not at all. Definitely not. And, you know, in that moment, even having seen it before, you do kind of gasp and you're like, yes, but also, holy shit. Yes. Um, <laughs> and those moments are beautiful. Yeah. And he, he does. And get, gruesome. Yeah. He gets what he deserves. After the disfigurement, he becomes even more this, this devil satanic figure. Um, which is made reference to throughout the whole thing. He he wears these black gloves. He's constantly shrouded in a in a kind of darkness. There's yes. a darker coloration that's given to the scenes he's in. The mm. weather changes with him. Clouds follow him. He causes a rainstorm more or less. In you know, there's a very sunny part mm. of the forest, and then he goes there and it starts raining. <laughs> um, it, when he's shooting a whole load of the rebels, it's all in grey skies. There are elements of fantasy and pathetic fallacy even within the real world. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he's this dark, evil character. Um, but he's realised so well, partly because Menethedis is there to kind of be this, this foil to him. Definitely. And, you know, I believe that us talking about these two characters and us talking about how they act as foils for each other leads us really nicely on to our next part of the podcast about the rankings that we give to different elements of the film. Yeah, and I think it, it's it's quite difficult because this is not an ensemble cast, but it's a large enough cast that you're, you're really looking at how well the whole cast works together. And 
between those two performances. I mean, Sergi Lopez and Maribel Verdu, mm. they they perform the hell out of those parts. True. And she performs this devoted fighter for what's right and and a, a defender of, you know, old Spain and nature. You know, mm-hmm. she's almost a nature guardian. Yeah. Um in the real world. And I, I do see a certain amount of what you were saying about her connection to, to the fantasies. Um, and to Ophelia. Their conflict is brilliant. Mm-hmm. But I do think that as part of what I was saying earlier, my criticism, the focus being so much on them yes, as two characters and their conflict almost takes away from the fantasy elements. I see that. I understand that. And that is very much in touch with the realistic elements, which, you know, makes up half of the genre of magic realism and as a way allows for their total to make even more of a point as to why this work is significant and as to why this realistic world of the Franco dictatorship does, to some extent, reflect the magical world which Ophelia is trying to be brought into. Overall, I I cannot criticise the actors. True. I think that it's ridiculously compelling, and I would give the acting a 10 out of 10. Okay. Okay, well done to you. I believe I will give the acting on my behalf a 9 out of 10, simply because I believe some of the actors didn't really shine in the few scenes that they had. So, for instance, Dr. Ferreira or Mercedes's brother. So, to some extent, I will put it down to the acting and to not their weakness, but not rising to the same level as Maribel Verdú and Sergi López. Um, well, I think the next element in which we can talk about is, I want to see a 10 out of 10 for me, and I imagine it's going to be a 10 out of 10 for you, but cinematography. This film looks beautiful, is shot beautifully. The colors and the work with colors is just wonderful. I've made multiple notes on the tinges and shades of blue used within the film to depict the underworld slash fantastical, magical, realism world of the fawn, and it's just wonderful to look at. You have the saturation at the beginning and in some of the shots in nature with Ophelia and with Mercedes. You then also have the saturated darkness in the depictions of Vidal. It's not a 10 out of 10 for me, cinematographically. I think it's very well shot, I think it's beautiful. Um, but I think it is a little bit too dark. I would agree with you about the colours if it was slightly more vibrant. Mm. And the point is that it's very, very vibrant in the Pale Man scene. But it goes from being very dark and kind of dingy mm-hmm. into a really vibrant scene. And I understand why that one should get a large amount of the colour, but I don't necessarily understand why the other fantasy aspects should be limited in terms of the colour that they use. My belief is that cinematography gets an 8 out of 10. Ooh, okay, interesting. With that, we can move on to the next category of ranking, namely music. Yes, well, as I say, we haven't really done that much on the music yet, um, unfortunately, because it's really, really good. Um, Javier Navarrete writes a spectacular score definitely um, that really complements the complicated tone of the film mm-hmm. um, but focuses of course as you would expect on the fantasy elements it's quite a grand score in places but it's also very 
understated in others, underlining the tragedy and the real world consequences of stuff that happens. Okay, um, with this score, I definitely felt a lot of it in the background, enhancing the scenes where it was playing, enhancing the feelings and emotions which you see connected to these specific characters. I believe that it also garnered a few nominations for its sound design, for the music, when it first came out. And that only goes to show how much of an excellent score and music overall was employed in this film and was developed by Javier Navarrete. I would, I would completely agree. It's structured around the lullaby with no words. The... They're words that have supposedly been forgotten, which is a very clever mm. um, thing, you know, the, the idea of her humming the lullaby because she can't remember the words and it's, it's kind of this idea of something lost. Del Toro loved the score so much that when it was actually released as an album, Del Toro asked to put back in all the bits of music that had had to be cut mm. from the film. That proves how much he loved it and how well it fit with his vision for the film. Definitely. My argument would be that a score that works that well and that the director loves that much can't really get much lower than a 10 out of 10. Oh, no. I mean, same with me. I think this is actually the first time where we're unified in our opinions about the ranking. 10 out of 10. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a very good score for a very, very good film. Definitely. Um, now, we've made a slight change to the next rating category um because originally it was just themes yes but especially after um our episode on dragging to hell mm. i think that the writing has to be taken into account <laughs> as well because of course themes are part of the, the creation of the film um, yes but particularly how well something is written and how well the the dialogue comes across and of course this film is in spanish but you do get an idea of how well the dialogue works purely from seeing how the actors are able to react to each other. True. And I do believe that the writing here, or at least the way that it works with the actors who were selected. Yes. You know, bringing casting into this as well. It's just perfect. I can't fault it. You know, no, you... definitely. And sorry, I just want to add to that, that Guillermo del Toro actually took it upon himself to write the subtitles in the English language himself for this film, having had previous disappointing experiences with subtitles for his previous Spanish language films. Yeah, well, I think I think in that case, it actually gets a bonus and becomes 11 out of 10. Definitely. Because if Del Toro is writing so expertly, both in Spanish and in English, um, then, you know, he just gets an honorary point. Completely. <laughs> but again, I think this is a maximum 10 out of 10 for me as well, simply because the themes are so universal and they stick with you and yet the writing makes them seem so specific and unique to this film yes Definitely. i completely agree yes now we come to the last of our individual categories for rating mm. uh, slash ranking which <laughs> is uh, the one weird element <laughs> of the film yeah. and in my case my weird element is the use of magical instruments devices and or characters within this film and in this I've specifically chosen to talk about the chalk, which Ophelia uses to teleport herself or to access other rooms quickly, the knife, which she takes from the pale man, and also the fairy assistants, which follow her around her adventures in topsy-turvy fantasy land. Now, I believe that all of these elements are underused by Ophelia and by the writing, simply because I believe that the chalk itself 
could have been used a lot more in order to maybe, for instance, take some food from the storehouse back to the villagers or even back to the partisans without putting Mercedes's life or Dr. Ferreira's life in danger. I guess if Ophelia could have trusted Mercedes enough with that information, Mercedes could have seen that as an opportunity to help the partisans better and not put her own life or their life in danger. So that's one thing. The knife, I don't remember the knife actually being used to great effect, if at all. Because well, it, no, Ophelia... it was meant to. It was meant to be. That's that's kind of the point at the end where, where mm -hmm. it's kind of like, use the dagger to kill your baby brother. Um, but she, of course, refuses to do it. Exactly. And then Ophelia dies of a bullet shot by Vidal. So the knife itself is really nothing more than a scaremongering device for yeah, her yeah, to kill. Plot device. It's a plot device. It's a plot device in order to strike fear into her to kill her baby brother. Mm. And mm. then the fairies, ah, the two extra fairies given to Ophelia in her second task are used mainly just to create a reference to Francisco Goya's paintings and the eating of children slash innocents. But I believe they could have been used for a lot more. Children, give me your tasty innocence. Oh, that sounds really bad, actually. No, oh, good, good. Uh, good. <laughs> so, in that sense, I appreciate a fucking lot how many magical elements Guillermo del Toro includes in this film, but I believe they weren't used to the best of their capabilities, so this is why, on this weird element, I will give the film an 8 out of 10. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, my weird element, I could talk about the um, the kind of connection between dream and reality, but I've kind of gone into that quite a lot. Okay. So I think I would be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit more about the prosthetics and special effects. Ah, right. Um, this film relies on both um, CG, uh, computer-generated imagery, but also on practical effects, mm. including puppetry, animatronics, and uh, prosthetics. Doug Jones being the kind of He's, he's the master of prosthetic wearing. For instance, when playing the Pale Man, he had to look out of the uh, nostrils of the suit. And wow. uh, yeah, a, a couple of uh, kind of trivia points before we get to the trivia bit now. But um, We've done that before already. Uh, Del Toro's weight loss actually inspired the saggy skin um, of the, the Pale Man, which is one of the aspects that is most horrific about its appearance. But yes, Doug Jones... Him as the fawn as well. The fawn, I would argue, is it's not quite as iconic an outfit mm. as uh, um, the Pale Man. But it is actually, I think, more beautiful. The, the ears and, and the slight movements of the head were done by animatronics. Right. And then you've got the, the legs being made out of kind of twisted branches. It's beautiful. But the, uh, yeah. unfortunately, the light is so low at points that you can't actually see the full beauty of the costume. Ah. Um, my belief is that, yes, OK, the CG is a bit dated and I did have an issue with it. I, I do think that the uh, things like the Mandrake route, which was achieved using both CG and animatronics and puppetry. Mm -hmm. um, the fairies are great um, in CG. And yes. I, I think that most of the film is beautiful. I think that it's a weird element. I mean, it's not too weird, but it, it is <laughs> distinctive to this film and to Del Toro's style. True. Um, and I think that because it's become what he's so well known for these days, I would say that 
he is associating this with his style, I have to give it a nine out of ten. Right. Um, it's it's one of the best examples of Del Toroism. <laughs> um, but uh, there are still small issues, which I think, if the film were made today, would be kind of ironed out. Definitely, definitely. But it's still absolutely beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just very, very happy that we managed to watch this film together for the first time and just revisit it after coming from such interesting, weird perspectives on it from our previous viewings of it. I think that only leaves us with our final overall ranking of the film. Um, would you like to share yours first? Yeah, mine is a 9 out of 10. Okay, um, okay. And I did expect myself to give it a 10 out of 10. I would have said 9.5, but I'm umming and ahhing about mm. giving 0. 0.5 uh, rankings A. And B, yeah. I think that there are things that I would want improved. It's not quite my favourite magical realism film, and because it's my favourite style, I'm hypercritical. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. Um, yeah, an absolute masterpiece. Definitely. But there are things that I would want to change, and there are things that I think could have been done a little bit better. Mm -hmm. But you get you get a serious feeling of passion from it. Yeah. Um, and it, it's a film that everyone should be proud of. Um, and, you know, I, I can only commend people to watch it and to disagree with me. Well, I think that also goes for me and goes for my opinions. Like, I invite all of our listeners and even those who are maybe sporadic listeners and have only listened to one or two of our episodes to write in, disagree with us, share their own opinions and share their opinion as to why they think my ranking overall of the film of 9 out of 10, similar to yours, mm. may be right, may be wrong, may be misguided. We, but we found our way to an agreement on the last ranking again, despite the fact that we disagreed on the other categories. Yes, on the individual categories. But yeah. I think that is still pretty good because it shows that despite our differences, we're able to come together in harmony. Yep. <laughs> this isn't a, a 70s song. <laughs> um, but yes. We're not Sonny and Cher, don't worry. <laughs> I mean, I back to Pan's Labyrinth and my ranking overall of the film as to a 9 out of 10. I do love this film. It is a brilliant film. It is a brilliant depiction of magical realism. And as I tend to do, I've also given a longer than five word description of the film. And in this case, it reads as magical realism introduction with amazing visuals, music, and stellar acting. I mean, completely true. I, I, Del Toro's masterpiece is as affecting as it ever was, mm. but there are chinks in the armor. Yeah, okay. I think it is time for us to share some more of our opinions that we didn't get to share. Yes, some, some notes. I've got comparisons here to both The Fall, as I've mentioned, uh, which was directed by Tarsem or Tarsem Singh, mm -hmm. um, and Spirited Away. Okay, it that way. okay. Um, and there's, there's a lot of crossover. Uh, little Girl Goes Into a Fantasy World. And Spirited Away, of course, is also Miyazaki's version of... Alice in Wonderland. Yes. Um, so lots of crossover there. There are a lot of time and scene changes within this film, mm. which to me are very fairy tale like and look ethereal and unreal, heightening the fantastical elements of this piece of art. I wrote this the first time that I re saw him and I was like, oh God, I remember how much of a shit Vidal is. Like, you actively hate this guy. He's, he's a little like those characters in Game of Thrones where you you kind of, you love to hate them. And of course, congrats to the actor and no hate to the actors ever. 
just a note on the setting itself. Setting the film in the mountainous area really, yes, gets a connection to nature, but in some ways also made me think of the Forest of Arden. The forest was seen as a realm where you would escape from the world. Yes. You know? So it's already a magical escape from uh, humdrum reality. Yes. Um, but then you add in all the fantasy elements and it's like uh, extra, extra mm. escapism. Um, I've got squeaky leather makes for an obvious villain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Always a good filmic technique. Um, little girls in films make for the best spies. Oh, definitely. Um, so there is a scene in the film where Vidal is holding a dinner reception and he welcomes several of his guests who come in via individual cars. And to me, that looked like it was a funeral procession. And I think that is very telling for what comes later in the film. Yeah, quite right. There's a lot of foreshadowing, as you would expect from a film, with this, with the themes. And also continuity. Oh, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Continuity and the attention to detail is beautiful. Yeah, it was clear that this was a, a work of not just art, but a labour of love. You know, yes. That they, they poured, yes. everyone poured a lot of time and energy into it. Totally, yes. Um, the fairy in this makes a mockery of the one in... Uh, Ocarina of Time. <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. <laughs> you mentioned the fact that Vidal manages to stitch his face back together after Mercedes cuts one half of his face up. And after he finishes sewing his face back together, he has a sip of whiskey and the wound immediately gets infected and it bleeds through the bandage. Yeah. So the attention to detail, top notch. Yeah. That, oh, this is a point that I actually forgot to reference earlier, and it's actually a bit of a negative point. Um, Ophelia um, risks everything by stealing food from the pale man's table. Yes. Within the context of that moment, there doesn't seem to be any reason for her to do so. She's never okay. shown herself to be greedy beforehand. Mm. And she's been told explicitly by the fawn and indeed by the fairies who are telling her, no, 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 don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But then she just decides to take some food. There's no reason hmm. for her to do this in the moment. She knows that something bad's going to happen. And yes, you can put it down to just childish curiosity. Yeah. But in that moment, especially considering the thing that we said earlier about her age, her being aged up. Okay. I want. I wanted more reason why she did it. So, yeah, I mean, the Pale Man scene is beautiful hmm. and very iconic visually. But there's some things about it that, to me, don't make sense. Um, Fawn is a trickster of the First Order. Fawn is a toxic trickster boyfriend. I also enjoyed the fact that Vidal, as the villain, is actually a point-of-view character. You know how in the Game yeah. of Thrones books, the characters are point-of-view characters, like chapters are written from their perspective? Mm. In this, you can say that Vidal himself is actually a point-of-view character. He's not yeah. just the villain. He, he actively is someone that the audience is asked to follow. Um, in terms of the way the story is told. Mm -hmm. um, she also drugs him at the end. And oh, that's, that's beautiful. You know, she drugs him and yet he still can't see the fawn, which even more suggests that it's going down the this is the dream, this is a dream route. Yes. Yeah, this fairy tale has some dark shit going on. <laughs> <laughs> and we can, uh, we can leave the notes there. Yes, and I believe those were very important notes to share with our audience. Before we move on to the final, final, final section of trivia facts about right. the film. So there might be some repetitions because we did 
juggle the facts around when we are talking about the film and the actors. But I believe one thing we did not mention, and it is extremely interesting, is how Guillermo del Toro almost lost four years worth of ideas, notes, characters, and everything for this film in the back of a taxi. Supposedly, he was staying in London sometime around the early noughties, so before the film got made, and he simply forgot a notebook in which he had a lot of the plot, the characters, and everything already written down. The only reason why the notebook was returned to Guillermo del Toro was because he also had a pen with him with the hotel name where he was staying, and that pen happened to just be with the notebook which he left in the taxi, and when he got back to the hotel, called him a taxi company, and it was luck of the draw, really, that the notebook managed to get back to Guillermo's hands. Well, I think massive thanks have to be given to some good Samaritan in London who uh, gave who gave it into the hotel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank everything for them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think it's cool to note that the pale man's eyes on his hands are actually a feature that's shared by a Japanese mythological monster... Uh, called the Tenome, mm. which is a name that literally means hand eyes. Interesting. Okay, so I guess the there are many different folklores involved in the Pan's Labyrinth. Yes. So, because their total had already established a name for himself within Hollywood, he actually was approached by a lot of Hollywood studios who wanted to produce and help finance the film, yet their total shot them down and denied any assistance from them, actually opting for having complete creative control mm. over his work of art. Um, in terms of the Catholic imagery mm. um, and the fact that it's kind of in there being conflated with the folklore, Del Toro said that he considers the film a layman's riff on Catholic dogma. Okay. So there's definitely a connection, but he, he sees it as being a combination of the two. Whereas Alejandro Iñárritu, who we mentioned earlier, described it as a truly Catholic film. So yes, obviously, even within the kind of the discussions about this film, there are a lot of disagreements about the meaning. And, you know, if we subscribe to the idea that once a piece of art is out there in the world, it doesn't belong to the person who wrote it anymore. Hmm. Um, I think we, we have to acknowledge that all the different interpretations are as welcome as all the rest. Okay, interesting. Um, apparently, Del Toro's favorite magical part of the film is the transformation, which happens in front of Ophelia's eyes, of the fairy, from an insect into a more fairy, pixie-like creature. Um, Del Toro himself performed the noises of the toad. Oh, right. Yep. Supposedly, the fawn, as played by Doug Jones, is much older in the beginning of the film and gets younger and younger as the film goes on. Okay. So, for instance, he is almost blind when he is first seen and with white hair and has a messy, dirty exterior, whereas at the end of the film, the fawn is slightly younger and slightly more presentable, let's say. Literally the only time I noticed that was in the final kind of dream sequence where the fawn shows up in the court of the Underworld King. Okay. So... And, and it's interesting that that scene has a lot more colour and brightness. So I yes. think one thing I would say is that would have been a lot more noticeable if the film had a slightly different colour pattern. Hmm. Interesting. So in, in line with the thing about the, the, uh, the Catholic faith there, Del Toro saw the film as actually an indictment of the Catholic faith. 
and their corroboration slash cooperation with Franco's regime in Spain. Mm. Um, which is interesting, the fact that Franco's uh, relationship with the Catholic Church is kind of parodied by his stand-in being a kind of version of the devil, at least yeah. in Ophelia's mind. Hmm. Quite fun, that, actually. Um, speaking about rifts and, I guess, uh, a depiction of the real world versus an imagined world, Del Toro has gone on record to say that he was inspired by video games and their use of music, as well as sound, in order to immerse the audience, or in video games' case, the player, into the work of art uh, that is put in front of them. Mm. This, this one's a strange one. Del Toro apparently has a vendetta against horses. Yes, supposedly Guillermo del Toro despises horses and cows. Is there any reason for that? I believe the fact that he doesn't like to work with animals, but those two animals in particular? Okay. Yeah. Supposedly, Del uh, Toro thinks of horses as nasty, psychopathic animals because one of the actors during the filming of Pan's Labyrinth almost had their chest crushed by a horse. Okay. Well, I, I do know that horses can cause great injury. Yes. Um, with, especially with their hind legs. Exactly. Um, but there we are. I mean, um, I think that we are almost at the end of our trivia barrel to yeah. be scraped. <laughs> Thank you so much for staying on with us on this journey through the labyrinthine winding ways of our minds. The minds of one of the most amazing directors of modern times and through the genre of magic realism. Yes, I, I think there's been a lot to take in with mm. this episode. We've gone through a lot of different things. Um, I wouldn't blame you if you've listened to this in various different chunks. Um, I would hope that you do that anyway, <laughs> because we know our episodes are pretty long and we ourselves are prone to enjoying and listening to long-form podcasts, but not everyone listens the same way. Not everybody is the same. And that is why we encourage you all the time to share your opinions with us, to share your comments, thoughts, ideas, and just get in touch with us. Contact us, whether that be on Instagram, whether that be via leaving us a five-star review on Spotify or your Apple podcast or your Google podcast or your other preferred podcast service, or even writing us an email at reencounterspodcast at gmail.com. And how that, those are all of the plugs out of the way already. However you listen in terms of the platform you use and however you listen in terms of how long you you can stand to listen to us at one time, uh, I hope you know that everyone is welcome and all your opinions are welcome as well. And we thank you for listening to us, standing our voices, and hopefully you will join us again on the next episode of Re-Encounters. Re